Welcome back to the Consumer Rights Talk. I'm your host, Adam Deutsch from Northeast Law Group in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Thank you for listening to the show. I've been getting a lot of positive feedback and really appreciate it. To help more people find the show, please leave a review on iTunes and tell a friend or colleague to listen. If you'd like to be a guest, you can also reach out to me by emailing adam at northeastlawgroup.com. To make sure that you get the latest episode every two weeks, when we publish on Fridays, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can also listen on my website for the firm, which is northeastlawgroup.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at AdamDeutschESQ for updates about the podcast, upcoming guests, consumer law, a lot of music babble, particularly about fish and the Grateful Dead, if that's your thing, and uh, anything else on my mind. All right, so... Today's guest is Jeremy Golden, who practices law outside of San Diego, California. Jeremy is the partner of a small firm exclusively practicing consumer rights law. Fifteen years ago, uh, he started practicing law, and he's now ten years into his partnership. And Jeremy and I discuss how he ended up practicing consumer rights law and the origins of the firm. Similar to my own experience, Jeremy's practice was initially built out of the foreclosure crisis and evolved into debt defense, FDCPA work, and FCRA. Now he has expanded into other areas, and we discuss it. These two particular areas of Jeremy's practice that he's most focused on are, one, identity theft cases, which are typically litigated out of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and the other growing practice area are student loans. We discuss not only struggles with the student loans, how to deal with uh, those schools, the private schools that have closed, dealing with private lenders versus federal lenders. We also discuss retainer structures, the business of law, and how Jeremy finds cases to support his partner, associate, and paralegal. As a solo, I always find talking to people who have managed to expand quite interesting, and I appreciate all the input that Jeremy provided. Without further ado, here is the interview. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, this was uh, a little tricky to set up, only because you are uh, three hours behind me over in sunny Southern California. How is it out there? Actually, not so sunny. We've had a lot of rain this week and all winter, but it, it's good keeping my plants in my garden um, well watered. You guys need it, that's for sure. Yes. Now, you're in the San Diego area, is that right? That's right, yeah. And San Diego... How'd you end up out there? Um, well, I grew up in Minnesota and then went to law school out here in California and passed the California bar and decided I was not going to take another bar exam for another state, so I wanted to stay out here and been practicing now for 15 years, all in San Diego, and it's the 10th year anniversary of our firm, um, partner at a Golden and Cardona. And we've been doing this down here in San Diego, representing um, consumers for 10 or 15 years. So the whole time, it's been consumer work. Yeah, right. When I first got out of law school, I did a little bit of everything. Started uh, doing some plaintiff's employment law, little criminal defense, um, a divorce case here and there. But uh, really, um, the more consumer law cases I took on, the more I enjoyed that and felt that's where... Um, People really needed help, needed um, good representation, and I, I liked meeting the people. I liked the area of law, 
and I felt there was really a need to be served there. So I've been doing that area of law almost exclusively for about 13 years. Wow. So I'm going to back up for a minute. You said you were from Minnesota. And what exactly, did you go to undergrad in warmer weather as well? Or, you know, give me a little bit of that background. Sure. Went and did undergrad at University of Wisconsin-Madison and was working in the law law library there and um, meeting with law students and thought that what I wanted to do um, getting out of college was go to law school and do intellectual property law. So went to law school up in the Silicon Valley at Santa Clara University and took some courses and worked at a tech company and, and did enjoy my time there, but I, I felt um, I kind of wanted to do law where I'm representing individuals, helping them with common everyday problems. And that's really where I, where I enjoyed working and serving those people. And so how did you end up making the change to the consumer area of law? Did that come through an area of employment when you got out? I mean, was it a job that you took or did you take classes in college, in law school? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't take any courses in, in college or, or law school and really wasn't familiar with this area of law, but um, got a job for um, an attorney who was um, doing this area of law and um, really enjoyed it and learned it um, sort of under his guidance. And then he ended up um, retiring and was able to take over a lot of his clients and and start a firm with uh, my partner now. And like I said, it's been about 10 years, uh, me and him, doing this down here in San Diego. How did you meet Octavio, your partner? Uh, we were working at the same firm before. Got it, and okay. So, yeah, we started um, our firm when we left the last one. Mm-hmm. And what size was that firm? That one we had um, probably about 10 employees or so. Mm-hmm. And at that time, that was right in 2009, and that was right when the whole mortgage meltdown happened and, and the foreclosure bubble burst. And so a lot of our clients at that time were individuals with problems with mortgages, foreclosure, and we were, um, especially out here in Southern California, um, price, housing prices, uh, dipped and, and people had underwater on their loans. And so there was a great need for not only modification work, but um, filing claims against the mortgage servicers for all, all different sorts of violations. So that that kind of um, really took off at that point. What what type of foreclosure state is California? Is it judicial or non-judicial? It's non-judicial. Um, and that certainly, I think, contributed to the whole foreclosure crisis out here because it was um, really easy to get the foreclosures filed. Um, There were a lot of questions with who had the right um, paperwork to do the foreclosure. Um, Those were some of the early challenges we were doing way back in in 2009, and and we're actually um, successful in getting injunctions and restraining orders, stopping a lot of foreclosures, Um, and that kind of um, worked its way into then problems with modifications where a lot of our clients would then um, get the foreclosure stopped. They would um, negotiate for a trial period plan, for example, make all their payments on a trial plan, um, and then still be foreclosed, even though they were current at that time. 
Got it. So how did you end up pursuing those claims? Uh, we'd file them in um, state court or federal court. There's uh, some good consumer protection laws here in California. Um, like the, There's an unlawful debt collection one. It could be that. It could just be a breach of contract claim, even fraud. Sometimes they'd have a written modification agreement um, that was signed by both parties, and they were paying according to it, and they would still be foreclosed. So that would be a, a breach of contract or some sort of fraud claim. And so outside of the housing work at the prior firm where you put in your first five years as a lawyer, uh, was what other areas were you practicing? Yeah, so um, at the, the previous firm, before the whole foreclosure crisis started, it was a lot of debt collection defense. Um, so a lot of lawsuits filed by debt buyers, um, and we were handling those cases, defending them. We still do that. We still see a, a lot of collection lawsuits filed. Um, and, and back then, we were one of the um, one of the few firms out here in California who really specialized in doing that debt collection work. And, and I guess I really enjoyed that because a lot of times um, when the um, collector files the lawsuit, they don't have the paperwork they need to prove their case and kind of what they're hoping for is that the consumer doesn't file a response and then they can go ahead and get a default judgment um, and they can tack on all their interest and attorney's fees and court costs and everything like that but if a consumer goes and hires an attorney um, they have a much better shot of either settling the case for a discounted amount or, or getting a dismissal and over the years I think we've gotten right close to 400 of these cases either dismissed or won a trial. And when you end up in that situation, do you often flip them and file affirmative claims? Uh, Yeah, we do. Uh Um, We sometimes will file a counterclaim, especially if um, there was harassing calls or the debt is not the client's or some other issue like that, or we can even wait till we get that case resolved and file a separate case in uh, federal court under the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. Yep. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, how do you structure uh, the, the fees with the clients, right? I mean, one of the issues, you said it, that, that typically these companies, the debt collection companies will assume in their risk pool that people are not going to respond. And the statistics across the country are very clear, right? It's something like 90% of collection suits end up getting defaulted. So yeah. there's only there's only about ten percent of people out there actually filing answers, and a lot of them are pro se, and some of right. them do return re- retain attorneys. But it, oftentimes, when I end up retained by a client, they're shocked to find out how economical it can be. Mm-hmm. You know, because there may be a fee shifting FDCPA suit, so we may be able to do certain things at a lower rate or on contingency. How do you develop your own model for that? Yeah, usually. Um if a client comes to me and they've been sued by a debt collector, we'll um, charge them a flat fee, um, usually based off of how much they're sued for that way. Because sometimes, I mean, you'd be surprised. Sometimes debt collectors will file lawsuits um, for $900. Yep. And so it doesn't make much sense to, to bill a client hourly because we can easily exceed the amount of um, legal fees in, can exceed the amount of the debt. So usually what we'll do is we'll see how much they're sued for and we'll f- charge them a flat fee for that. And you know, we, we make flexible payment arrangements. Um, we realize that uh, a lot of our clientele have uh, come to us because they have problems 
um, paying their bills. And, you know, as a side to that, most of these people, um, it's not something they chose, right? Usually some sort of life event has kind of set them back, um, whether it be a, a divorce or um, a death in the family or some sort of health issue. So usually, um, you know, we'll agree to flexible payment plan. They can just pay us over time and help them get back on their feet. But in the meantime, they got to deal with this lawsuit, which is kind of, for them, often very stressful. can be confusing trying to navigate the court system. So that, that covers the fair debt and, and debt defense type stuff. I know that you have other practice areas as well. What are those? Yeah, so, um, you know, after the whole foreclosure um, mess, we started getting a lot more clients um, with problems with their credit report. Um, these are the people who had maybe lost a home um, and were now looking to buy a new one, and they would go try to purchase a home and a uh, bank would run their credit and see that they couldn't um, finance them because of some on their credit. And a lot of times, um, it was incorrect information. So we were helping people with that, and it could be anything from accounts that weren't theirs. Uh, we've had people come to us with um, files that were mixed uh, with someone with a similar name, and so all of a sudden they had um, an account that wasn't there show up. In fact, uh, one guy... I remember out here came to me and he was applying for a home with his wife and when they pulled his credit um, on there was all these child support bills and his wife got very upset wondering why he had outstanding child support <laughs> when she thought he didn't have any other kids and sure enough it was someone with the identical name who lived in the same neighborhood and that other individual's child support bills got put on my client's credit report and he had disputed it with the credit bureau and it didn't get cleaned up and so he had to come and, and hire us and we were able to uh, clean it up for him and then get him a, a settlement as well for um, the trouble he had to go through. So um, yeah, credit reporting has been a, a good area um, for us. We've been able to help people. Um, along those lines too, identity theft is something we see a lot. Um, heard it's one of the fastest growing crimes and I mean it affects millions of people and so we're able to get people um, get their credit cleaned up a lot of times people will have collectors calling for debt that not theirs or even they receive lawsuits um, for accounts that aren't theirs Mm -hmm. and so how do you so are the primary areas uh, basically debt defense FDCPA and Fair Credit Reporting Act related claims yeah that's right and, and so, under that, too, yeah. um, we handle TCPA, so that's people getting robocalls. Uh-huh. Handle those. And so yeah. do you structure your client agreements differently under those statutes? Yeah, so most of those claims we'll do on a contingency. Um, if they have a viable claim, we'll, um, for the most part, um, be willing to take it on um, with the understanding that at settlement will uh, get paid from whoever... Um, has violated the law. Um, most of these statutes have a fee-shifting provision, so if we're successful, um, the defendant has to pay our fees. You know, what? one of the hang-ups, I think, for a lot of consumer attorneys, right, a lot of us are really small firms, like solos, right? I'm a true solo. I know that you have a partner and, I believe, two other attorneys. Is that right? Yeah, so it's, well, it's me, my partner, and then we have one attorney and one paralegal. One attorney, 
Okay. So, you know, one of the hangups I think for people often is worrying about making payroll, covering those overhead expenses as you go beyond solo or, you know, just a, a straight partnership, particularly when you're dealing with things on a contingency. How long did it take you to expand and hire your first employee? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, we were kind of fortunate because we were taking over um, from another attorney, so we were able to work out where we kind of took on his clientele, but still took um, a, a good year um, before we were able to hire on um, someone new. Yeah. Got it. And and have you always had another attorney working there with you guys? Yeah, it's always been me and my partner, and then. Um, yeah, I think for the most part, you know, there's been a few lows um, where we haven't had an attorney, but for the most part, yeah, we've always had another attorney. Especially, too, you know, we do, especially with the collection defense, it is a, a high volume, so we're in court a lot. And we take, you know, a lot of cases to trial. We do uh, a lot of arbitration, so it's it's great. Um, you know, I like getting out of the office every once in a while and getting into court. And, you know, it's good to have uh, someone else because we'll have... Um, a couple of hearings on the same day, um, occasionally. And how are you finding your clients? Um, we have a couple of different sources. We um, have a ref- we're with the um, Bar Association referral source, so that that helps. Um, we have our website, so people come to us from Google. Um, we get referrals. A lot of um, our clients too are repeat clients, right? Um, people who maybe did go through a foreclosure and now they need help cleaning um, that up on their credit report. Maybe we help them um, get a modification, but now the credit bureau's um, improperly reporting it, saying they're past due when they're still current. So we get a lot of repeat clients um, and then internet. And those are kind of the main sources. Now with your local referral system through the bar, do they have certain requirements regarding, you know, how much you can charge and things like that? I know uh, that's fairly common. Um, I don't think. Um, we have to give them a free consultation, which, mm-hmm. I mean, we do with anyone, with everyone anyways. Um, so we do that, and I think they have some other requirements, like you need malpractice insurance, and um, I think those, that's really it. They're not any type of, they don't really... Um, tell you what you can charge or what you can't charge. Well, that's kind of nice. I, you know, it's interesting out here. I'm in Western Massachusetts and my county has a referral program. It's almost exclusively out of the you know, small claims jurisdiction. So it's a lot of the, the debt defense. And then uh, you end up having a lot of auto issues and other things like that that come through the referral. But yeah. what's interesting is I'm actually capped. It's a low income program effectively for you to be eligible for the referral service for the client to be eligible and so you can only charge up to 75 dollars an hour which can be tough um obviously but you know if you're like you said for for someone where it's a 95 you know a 900 debt it kind of makes sense to do that and then if there's an fdcpa claim you can turn around and do that on a contingency subsequently with the client and they're always incredibly appreciative. Yeah. Yeah, that is great, too, when you get someone who who comes to you and they think they they owe a debt, and you find some violations, and you're able to um, help them with the debt and even get some money in their pocket. So, 
So is there a particular area of practice that you like the most? Um, you know, I really like the identity theft cases that come in because um, they're so unique and the people, um, they really need help. I mean, because they can have such an impact on people, right? I mean, I've had people who've had a, um, identity stolen and then they get sued on a debt and then the next thing they know, their whole bank account is cleaned out. And that can really be um, scary for people. And it's hard to um, sometimes deal with the creditors or debt collectors because they don't necessarily take you at your word. Um, so I really like um, helping people with those. And, and some of the credit reporting cases are good too. I had another um, lady come to me and on her credit report, she couldn't get an apartment or any financing because it kept reporting her as deceased. And sure enough, she came in and sat down with me and, and she was um, alive and well. And despite her multiple disputes, they kept reporting her as deceased. So that's a, another one we had. Uh, um, I, I enjoyed helping her with that and getting um, her report cleaned up. You know, uh, when these cases come in, like that's obviously the, the type of case that you'd be thrilled to see walk through the door. You know, how how often do you turn cases away? How, how do you do your assessment? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, probably, um, you know, there's at least, you know, a case a week that I do turn away for whatever reason just might not be um, a viable case or might not be a, a violation um, yet or might just not be something worth uh, bringing into court because the violation really isn't um, that severe enough to really justify litigation. But um, even in those situations, I'm always um, willing to give a, a free consultation to someone and um, build that goodwill um, and hope that you know maybe later on they'll have another issue and they'll, they'll remember and, and come back to me or, or refer a friend or neighbor or something. So, yeah, it happens. Um, Certainly. And I'm curious, when you are getting involved with, you know, where, where there's an FCRA and you got to do the, the dispute uh, to the credit reporting agencies, do you get involved in writing that letter? There's kind of a split among opinions of attorneys that I've talked to, whether to have the client do that with minimal instruction or to get involved early and often as the attorney. What's your approach? Yeah, it's kind of case by case, right? I mean, some clients will come to me, and I can just um, right there um, hammer a letter out, and have them sign it, and send it out for them. But um, other times, it might not be quite something that is worth getting an attorney involved in. So maybe I'll just have them, you know, I'll instruct them um, how to do the dispute and send them a sample. I think we have up on our website some instructions and a sample, and so instruct them to do it so um, I kind of do it I've done it um, both ways yeah it also depends too sometimes clients um, they um, yeah it's a little bit more complicated for them to figure out how to draft a letter and include all the um, evidence to support their dispute it's just easier to have an attorney do that for them and is your preference to be involved early or it's really just case by case sensitive yeah just case by case okay yeah Got it. Um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about the identity theft because the way that you referenced it, you seem to be seeing a lot of that these days. Yeah. Um, it's been pretty steady for the last few years, um, but there certainly is not letting up at all. And, and the, 
um, cases we get are all so different. I mean, I've had people come to me where they went to try to get a cell phone and, and there was um, 12 other cell phones taken out their name and couldn't get one. And that was the first they heard that their identity was stolen and it was stolen from a, a, an employee of the cell phone store who went and used their identity and they got a bunch of cell phones. So it can affect wow. you from anything from getting a cell phone. I've had uh, people um, with uh, right bank accounts cleaned out, wage garnishments, um, harmed them. I've had another guy who um, was using one of the online tax um, software programs and went to file his um, taxes and he got a letter back from the IRS saying, well, we already have received your taxes and sent you a tax refund. So someone had stolen his identity, filed a false uh, tax return and got his tax refund. You know, the, the tax refund one I've heard of before. It actually happened to my father-in-law, I believe. Wow. Um, so, I, you know, that one I've, I've seen before. What's your process when someone comes in telling you that their identity has been stolen? And let's let's assume for a second that uh, they are, you know, they've received notice that they're being pursued uh, for debt collection. And that's the uh-huh. type of identity theft. What's your process? So first thing I'll always tell them to do is uh, file a police report, right? If it's a true identity theft, that police report's really going to come in handy um, because at that point, the, the, there's, the law is pretty clear that the creditor has to investigate it. Um, the credit bureaus have to investigate any claim, and, and it really corroborates um, my client's claim for identity theft when they have the police report. So that's step number one. Um, step number two, I'll have them pull a credit report if they're... Um, here in my office, we can do that together um, because even though they may be getting notice on one debt, usually um, there might be another debt or some inquiries on their credit report. So we'll, we'll pull a credit report together, go through, see what else is on there. Um, and then step three, we'll send um, alerts to the credit bureaus, let them know there's a situation of identity theft, um, and identify the accounts that they dispute and the inquiries. And hopefully, right, for the client, it gets cleared up at that point. Um, unfortunately, it's usually not that easy. And uh, collection calls keep coming, the credit report continues. And then at that point, we might have to look um, to see if it's a case where we're going to have to file litigation because there's no other way to clean it up at that time. And how often are you finding that it turns out the person knows who it is that stole their identity? Yeah, that's a, a good point. It, you know, if I had to put a percentage on it, it might be even close to half. Yeah. Um, frequently, people, um, it could be a family member, um, ex-spouse, it could be a roommate. Um, one, one case I had, the my client was a former um, player in the NFL, and his dad um, used his identity and took out a bunch of money under the guise of student loans. And when my client finally discovered it, there was a, a whole bunch of student loans on his uh, credit reports. So yeah, it could even be, unfortunately, someone using their kid's identity to take out a loan. So yeah, it happens, and, and it does make the case a little bit trickier, because then really um, it's up to the client then if they um, are willing to file a police report and prosecute someone maybe they know. 
in that uh, student loan situation, was the money actually used to pay for education? No, it was not. No. So it was a private loan situation under the guise yeah. of student loan. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's tricky stuff. Yeah. It yeah, really is. Um, and so have you... Um, how did that work out in that situation? I mean, are most people willing to file the police report and go through with it when it's a family member? Um, yeah, it varies, right? Some people um, don't have a problem doing it because for whatever reason the, the family member is uh, kind of disowned them or they've disowned them. And, and then other people, it's just it's kind of gut-wrenching because they're on the hook for debt that's not theirs, but um, they may not want to go all the way and and file um, criminal charges. So, you know, I kind of leave that up to the client's discretion. Um, They have to kind of decide what's important to them. The reality is the police generally don't act on these, though, right? That's true, yeah. Um, Unless it's kind of like an ongoing thing and it's maybe a larger criminal ring, yeah. Rarely um, have I seen um, these sort of one-off identity thefts where it's just like a roommate or an ex-boyfriend maybe opened a, a smaller balanced credit card. I haven't, can't say I, I often see the police follow through. And, you know, that's understandable. They, they certainly have um, more important things to do than a $2,000 credit card, right, if they're dealing with murder. Sure. Now, I could, I could imagine that your client with the cell phone situation where it is a, you know, a, a brick-and-mortar store where someone is clearly doing this in a serialized manner that that may warrant investigation to see has he done this to other people as well and did the store know about it so that there's a supervision problem things like that and then perhaps you go after it but that's that's going to be something where there's a much bigger aggregate of you know Mm -hmm. the the wrongful behavior yeah very interesting um all right, so what other uh, common themes are you finding these days? Um, so, you know, another um, theme that's really kind of getting busy and a lot of action is student loans, right? I mean, so many um, people have these loans, and um, the balances are, I mean, billions, if not even, I don't know if it's even reached um, higher than that, the amount of outstanding student loans and the amount of default and people. So we see a lot of people come to us with student loan problems um, and we can help them certainly if it's um, a lawsuit that was filed against them on like a private loan. We can assist them with that. Um, Sometimes people have these loans for schools that have closed or shut down. Um, We can help them try to get those loans discharged. Um, Some of the Student loan servicers, as I'm sure you're aware, um, call people all the time, multiple times a day, over and over, using robocalls, so we can help them um, with that as well. But that's just one thing that I, I don't see going away as the, the problems people have with student loans. Yeah, this is a great area. I think that you're right. It's It's not going away, and I don't think that we have completely reached the you know we're certainly headed towards the edge of a cliff and we definitely haven't gotten there yet as far as a bubble is concerned Um, a lot of times i'm finding that attorneys are really just unclear on what to do with it particularly if they are federal loans and not private yeah 
are you do you separate in terms of whether you're willing to represent someone and take on a case between you know the government-backed loans and private ones yeah um we do we'll take on both um you know we're we were at that uh you know the naca conference uh last month where we met you know they had a great seminar um and there's really a lot of great resources um through naca on um helping borrowers with student loan problems and there's there's even stuff to be done whether it's federal or private and um, i think it's you know an area where there's really a need for attorneys just given the amount of um, borrowers who need assistance and it is you know one of the areas too where sometimes you just can't really help them or what you can do um, is just point them the borrower in the right direction on, on how to get in one of the repayment plans because yep. some of them can be pretty helpful um, to people and sometimes that's all they, they just need is um, a little guidance on where to go to find the right repayment plan because what I've seen is the student loan servicers, they're not that helpful in finding the most um, advantageous repayment plan for the borrower. Um, in fact, um, sometimes they'll put you in one that's worse off for you just so they can make more fees. That's that's interesting. And have you looked into that model, you know, in terms of how they are getting paid their fees? Have you dealt with that in discovery or elsewhere in litigation? Um, not that claim specifically, um, but I do see that a lot of times that borrowers will keep calling um, a servicer asking for what they can do about repayment. And instead of being put in one of the repayment plans that maybe leads to loan forgiveness at some point, they might be put in like a, a forbearance or deferment, which all that does is sort of delay the payment, but in the meantime, they're being charged interest or, or fees associated with that. Right, so perhaps they were laid off, they need a reprieve, and they should be going into an income-based repayment and apply for recertification where it'll just drop what their payment is because now their income is zero. And instead, yeah. they're told to go into full deferment. Right. That makes sense. Um, just for anyone listening out there and, and for you as well, uh, during episode 19, I interviewed Josh Cohen, who's uh, as oh. his you know student loan lawyer website. Um, So we had a a really good detailed conversation about that. Um, How are you seeing a a lot of these for-profit schools? Is that something you you mentioned, but are you seeing that a lot? Um, I wouldn't say a lot, but every now and again, right, we'll we'll hear on the news uh, another school failed, and then we'll kind of get a a blip in our contacts where we'll get a couple of the um, students wanting to see what they could do as far as um, their loans, and it might be a matter of just helping them walk through the process of uh, filling out a, a discharge application and getting that to the right party so the um, lender can review that. Now, are you doing any direct advertising for that, or is this strictly uh, basically from you know website traffic? Yeah, really, probably student loans. I think I get most of that referrals from other attorneys because a lot of attorneys don't want to touch it, and you can't necessarily blame them. It is fairly complicated. And fairly, I mean, new in the sense that there's not a whole lot of precedent or authority on, on how these issues should be resolved. So a lot of other attorneys who don't touch those cases will, will pass them on to us. Got it. Very interesting. So yeah. I want to ask, um, as you are, you know, you, you have that 
one lawyer and then a second employee who's a paralegal. Do you have goals in your practice to expand beyond that? You know, I think we're pretty comfortable um, where we are right now, so I don't really have any um, specific goal. Um, Certainly if there was something like, uh, you know, when we first started out and there was the whole foreclosure crisis and it was here um, really hitting Southern California hard, you know, that was a good time where we did have more employees, and I think if something like that happened again, um, I always kind of have my um, eye on the radar, see what other areas of law might just take off. And it could be something like, like you said, like student loans, like might just be, might not be too far away from some sort of major crisis there. Um, so, I, you know, as I sit here today, I don't have any plans, but mm-hmm. certainly if the, the laws or the market changed, um, I think we, I could see us expanding. And when you have been in the need to hire in the past, how did you go about deciding who the right fit would be for your firm? Yeah, you know, the best place we found is um, uh, there's a couple of paralegal programs out here, different um, at the law school and, and the uh, university out here. And going through, they have some good um, um, sort of career placement um, offices. And so going through them, having them set us up or send us some candidates and having them do sort of the initial screening is kind of really important. I think they you know, want to send us who I think, you know, they've kind of screened as the best candidates. Um, so that really helps. Um, and then, you know, certainly um, just from networking, right, if uh, it can be another attorney who knows someone who just graduated or maybe they had someone who um, is looking for a job, that's a, a great way to find find help that's great and i want to ask about you know finding a law partner now obviously you started off working with your partner at the prior firm and so i I assume that there was somewhat of an organic nature to this where you knew that that firm was was folding the guy was retiring and you needed to do something else um how you know do you have any tips for anyone who may be looking to find a partner and negotiating around some of those issues as to what your goals are you want to make sure your partner has similar goals that you guys fit together that the financial decisions are the same you know how do you navigate those issues or when you guys have a conflict how do you deal with it yeah that's a good question well i think definitely i mean you want to have the same uh kind of goal, at least as far as like who you're representing, right? And I mean, we both are committed to, to representing individuals and families, people kind of find themselves in these situations with, um, you know, debt or finance companies, credit reporting. So certainly, you know, overarching, I have the same kind of philosophy on, on who you want to represent. And I think that once you kind of get that um, agreement, um, that's kind of the main thing because you don't want to be handling, um, you know, different areas of the law that one person's not interested in or not. Um, and then, yeah, so it's good, too, to find someone who's um, maybe has different strengths or um, skills than you do. That way you can kind of uh, um, use that to your advantage, and, you know, hopefully you have something, too, that you can add. That's great. Just a couple more questions for you. Um, one question I, I like to ask is, you know, do you end up at trial or almost all these cases closing in settlement or some other resolution? Yeah, you know, probably 90% of the cases do get settled. Um, on the debt defense side, we have trials. I have one 
tomorrow. Um, and on the when we're filing suit for um, violations of consumer law, um, we have trial more infrequently, but even arbitration um, seems to be more and more common these days. So you know, we'll take them to trial. You know, every once in a while. But uh, you know, especially. Um, And do you prefer going as far as you can in the case, or you know, is there? Are you pushing it? Is the other side just yeah, not interested? Um, what? How are you getting there? Yeah, usually, I mean, I think it would be if we're just not getting a fair offer, right? We'll kind of be able to value a case and know what a reasonable settlement is, and if the other side's not uh, willing to pay what the case is worth, then yeah. And one more question for you. Are you doing any class action work? Um, Not on our own. We have um, been local counsel for um, other firms who have filed them out here. So we've done that. But um, on our own, we do not do class actions. Um, It's just kind of, I think, firms a little bit smaller and um, haven't had um, really much opportunity other than associating with other firms, which we'll do. Sure. Uh, you have any big goals or, or trends that you're watching? Um, you know, it's just, yeah, the student loan thing is certainly, yep. um, I think, going to come to a head sooner or later just because, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the only debts you can't get rid of in bankruptcy. So it's going to be around for a while. Right? There's no, I think it's like student loans, murder, and treason are the only things <laughs> that don't have a statute of limitations. Yeah. So, you know, it's not going to um, sort of time itself out. It's going to be following these people around. So I think that's really going to be an area that I've been watching and very interested to see um, what's going to happen. I mean, it's great now. You know, the economy seems to be doing good. People are working. But sooner or later, um, if, if that were to change, um, people are going to really have a hard time paying these student loans off. Well, you know, if, if it's something that you're looking for, I know back in the interview with Josh, he talks about a whole seminar system that he has ongoing uh, where he does, you know, more trainings, but he also has a whole network of, of referrals throughout the country. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so it's an easy way for, for you or any other attorney interested in getting into more of the student loans to really, you know, really learn their stuff from a true master and yeah. also get a lot of referrals out of it. Yeah, that's good. Great. Excellent. Anything else you want to add? No. Okay, I'll, I'll, one more. Yeah. Claim. To the data breach stuff, I think, is um, kind of fascinating, too. Right? We filed um, some of those cases where the, the um, big companies, they've been hacked and people have lost their um, personal information, whether it's social security number or something like that. And, right, we've kind of come into that by all our work with identity theft. So I think that's going to be just another ongoing um, issue people are going to be dealing with, especially more people's um, private information is out there with all these companies. Mm -hmm. And California passed a new um, data breach statute, which is set to take effect um, January 1st, 2020. So I think that's really going to shift the landscape out here. No one really knows. if it's going to be a a law that's helpful to consumers. Um, But I think 
there'll be a private right of action under it. And I think um, that's something that you know, people really need help with because um, the problem is it leads to identity theft. And it's good to kind of hold those companies accountable when they're not uh, protecting people's private information. Excellent. I, I wish you the best of luck with that stuff. I mean, it's uh, yeah. we're all signing our lives away on a daily basis. I, I don't even think we have scratched the surface of how much we know we are doing that. <laughs> I, I mean, from more news I read and hear, it's, there's just more information that's out there on us that we don't even know about. It's a tough thing because in many ways you kind of don't have a choice if you no. want to be a member of modern society. No, and I'm sure that they're, they're listening into this call right now. <laughs> Hopefully they will once it's published even more, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You bet. Have a good one. All right.